so thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me and thanks for coming out. It's a pleasure to be speaking here. So the argument I'm going to give you today is derived from a chapter in a book project I have on the crime of aggression. And motivating the chapter and indeed motivating the whole book is the fundamental question, why have we criminalized aggressive war? And another way of thinking about that is what's criminal, or what's criminally wrongful about aggression? And motivating the question is the observation that aggression seems to be something like the odd crime out in international law. That's immediately apparent in its relative dormancy since Nuremberg, also in its limited scope of liability and jurisdiction in the forthcoming amendment to the ICC statute. But it's also, I think, uh, notable in a deeper normative sense that in addition to these obvious differences, aggression is seen to be different in that respect. Because whereas crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes criminalise the gravest wrongs against human persons, aggression seems to criminalise a wrong against states. Indeed, I think that's how both those who defend the criminalization of aggression as morally appropriate and those who criticize the criminalization of aggression as morally misguided understand the normative underpinning of the crime of the law. And so my core claim in this argument is that both sides of that debate are mistaken about their normative premise, their shared normative premise. Mistaken, in other words, in their understanding about what's criminally wrongful about aggression. Before I come to why I think that's the case and what my alternative uh, proposal is, let me just sketch this dominant uh, orthodox, I guess, normative account of the crime. So most prominent among those defending the criminalization of aggression with respect to this or reference to this dominant normative account is Michael Walzer, who argues that the crime of aggression captures a genuine wrong against states which derive their moral value from their status as sites of collective self-determination, a status that he thinks endures even significant human rights failings or minority rights failings. And so aggression on this account is what he calls a violation of a communal right, not to be vested in the state on the path of the political collective, not to be uh, subject to external interference. And that's the moral core of what Walter calls the legalist paradigm on which, as he puts it, states possess rights more or less as individuals do in the domestic setting. And so he departs from this in marginal cases. His moral theory departs from this in marginal cases. But for the most part, he understands this moral theory to underpin the legal posture on the use of force and particularly the criminalization of aggression, to stand as a defense of it as a wrong against states. So with some minor tweaks at the margins around things like why states are morally valuable in the first place, I think this is the dominant normative account of the crime, of the law in this domain. And that's true both among those who defend the criminalization, as I said, but also those who critique it. So in the latter camp, think about David Luban's critique of the criminalization of aggression. So he accepts something like Waltz's as the correct internal normative account of the crime. In other words, he endorses the idea that the crime of aggression is best understood as a wrong against the moral rights of states or their political collectives. But having accepted that as the internal normative account of the crime, he argues that's precisely why we should think it's a bad idea to criminalise this act. Because states, on his account, just don't possess the kind of moral rights that the law and Walzer ascribes to them. And so as a moral matter, the putative wrong underpinning the crime isn't wrong at all, or at least isn't sufficiently gravely wrong to warrant international criminalization. 
So that's why Luban calls the criminalization of aggression a major moral enemy of the human rights movement and the Nuremberg legacy, as he puts it, at best equivocal and at worst immoral. But what's notable for me about these two different views is that they agree on the normative premise, on the idea that the law as it stands is built on the premise that the state or the political collective it represents is the victim of the core wrong of aggressive war. Where they disagree is whether that's actually a wrong immorality or whether it's sufficiently wrong. But they agree that that's what the law is expressing. And as I said, I think that's where they are both mistaken. Now, I agree with both of these accounts that criminalizing an action, especially criminalizing an action in international law, entails the internal normative claim that the action criminalized violates basic moral values and that it's worthy of condemnation. And I'll return to that point in a moment because I recognize it might be controversial. But where I disagree is that the criminalization of aggression is properly interpreted as expressing a morality of states' rights. On the account I put forward, a violation of sovereignty or states' rights typically is important in determining whether a war is criminal. But it's not why aggressive war is criminal. It's not the wrong at the core of the crime. It's not the wrong that the law condemns and punishes. So the core moral problem with aggressive war is neither that it infringes sovereignty nor even the extent to which it infringes sovereignty. In fact, in at least one case, I'll argue, it doesn't need to infringe sovereignty at all. The wrong is rather the wrong of large-scale killing in a context that doesn't warrant the affliction of such profound harms because it doesn't respond to the just, it doesn't have the justification of responding to killing or the threat, the immediate threat thereof. So I'll call this the unjustified killing account. And on this unjustified killing account, aggression is more crime against humanity than crime against sovereignty. Now, before I give the argument, the reasons why I think this is the better account of the law, it's probably worth saying a little bit about the method. So to explain what I mean when I say I'm giving a normative account of the law, Walzer gives a normative account, Luban gives a normative account, or Larry May gives a normative account of the crime of aggression. So what I mean here is um, that I'm offering account of the notion of the wrongfulness that makes sense of and underpins the legal posture on a given issue. And the premise of engaging in that kind of analysis is that the law in at least certain domains doesn't merely coordinate, it condemns and prohibits. In other words, in criminal law, it doesn't just provide priced permissions, it condemns. It says this is morally wrong. And international criminal law, I think, is one of the clearest exemplars of a domain of law that adopts that normative posture, that doesn't just provide price permissions, but prohibits. And if we take that posture seriously, then it raises a question as to, if this is expressing values, what are those values? What is the wrong that's being condemned here? So, again, to return to the core question, if international criminalization entails from the internal point of view, severe condemnation of the criminalized act as contravening basic moral values, what is it about aggression that grants it that status? So the idea is to inhabit the, norm the internal point of view. And I think in adjudicating between alternative normative accounts of a given rule or given crime, there are three criteria that would determine whether one is superior to another. I actually think there might be four, but for the purposes of this talk, I only need three, so I'm going to rely on them. 
The first is which of the accounts better explains what the rule clearly prohibits and allows. The second is which coheres more closely with the purposes of the regime of which the rule is part. And the third is which comports better with the law in related and adjacent domains that govern similar issues. And the conceit of the argument is that understanding the law's normative premises in this way can help us understand both what the contours of the rule are and what some adjacent secondary implications in adjacent domains are. So I think with that sort of methodological uh, statement out of the way, I think that there are five reasons or five arguments why the crime of aggression is a crime the core wrong of which is unjustified killing rather than a violation of states' rights. So those five reasons are the following, and I'll go through them in greater detail, but first just so they're all on the table. So the first is I just think states' rights actually aren't that helpful in explaining either the jus ad bellum or its criminal status. The second is that unjustified killing does a much better explanatory job in that respect. The third is that it makes aggression more coherent with international criminal law as a regime. The fourth is that it comports better with the public reasons offered for the prohibition on the use of force in the early 20th century. And finally, it matches the moral posture that was imminent in the courtrooms at Nuremberg and Tokyo when dealing with aggression. Okay, so let's consider each of those five reasons in turn. So when I say that states or people's rights just aren't very helpful in making sense of the crime of aggression, what do I mean? Well, prior to the UN Charter, and indeed probably prior to Kellogg-Briand, states had an almost unchecked sovereign authority to use force to vindicate their legal rights, to vindicate states' rights. As we all know, in the absence of a global authority to determine the legal status of those claims, and given the broad set of legal claims that could uh, warrant a use of force, it was almost inconceivable that states' authority to wage war, to vindicate unilaterally their state's legal rights, could be abrogated. And that was in many respects the peak of sovereignty or states' rights in international law. And prohibiting the use of aggressive force restricted severely the state's sovereign capacity to vindicate its legal rights unilaterally, including, and I'll come to this later, including even its rights of political independence and territorial integrity. Now, obviously, at the same time, it heightened the protection of one particular state right, namely the right not to be subject to armed attack. And indeed, that's the right that still endures as a right that can trigger the authority to use force. But the right against armed attack is just one element of the communal rights of states. And while it was enhanced in the criminalization of aggression, the other rights were limited, stripped of their unilateral vindication mechanism. So that raises a question. Okay, so what's special about the right not to be subject to armed attack? And unless that question can be answered with reference to states' rights or sovereignty, then states' rights and sovereignty have a deeply ambivalent relationship with the prohibition on the use of force and the criminalization of aggression. Now, the obvious way to escape that difficulty is to argue that aggressive war is the most egregious violation of states' rights or sovereignty. And if that were true, then we could see the prohibition on the use of force and the criminalization of aggression as being rooted in states' rights by heightening the protection of the most important state right or the prohibition on the most egregious violation of states' rights. But I don't think that claim does hold. And this brings me to the second reason, which sort of 
in an iterative way, go through the first and second together now. And so the second reason is that what distinguishes aggressive war from other sovereignty violations, what makes it criminal when no other sovereignty violation is, isn't that it inflicts a particularly egregious violation on territorial integrity or political independence, but that it involves widespread killing without the justification of responding to the same. And so I think this can be seen both from what has not been criminalised, but also what has been criminalised. So non-violent but extremely effective violations of territorial integrity or political independence are not international crimes. Nor do I know of any argument that they should be internationally criminal. So think about severe infringements of political independence, like manipulating a foreign state's elections or installing a puppet regime without using force to do so. Those are actions that pose a grave threat to genuine self-determination and political independence, but they're not internationally criminal, nor do I know of anybody who's argued that they should be. Similarly, controlling foreign territory through means other than an illegal armed attack such as through failing to turn over certain territory in the course of a secession to the seceding entity, or slowly developing the mechanisms of governance over a neglected border area. They're illegal, and they violate the territorial integrity of the other state, but they're not criminal. And even within the category of violent interstate interactions, the reason that a particular aggressive attack is unjustified isn't that it undermines territorial integrity or political independence, Lawful defensive wars can do both of those things legitimately, at least temporarily. It's that it doesn't respond proportionately to an armed attack, an armed attack. So using force to remedy a severe but non-violent infringement of political independence, like manipulating foreign elections, would be illegal and could potentially qualify as an act of criminal aggression. Similarly, according to the Ethiopia-Eritrea Claims Commission, it's a Yusad Bellum violation, and that's at least potentially criminal, although not in that case, for a state to use force to recover its own territory if that territory or the repossession of it wasn't, respond, wasn't a response to an armed attack. In contrast, aerial bombardment or an attack on a foreign state's naval fleet, both acts that are listed explicitly in the uh, forthcoming ICC amendment, need not even pursue the objective of undermining a foreign state's political independence or taking territory to qualify as criminal. And this is perhaps the most important example. Waging war against a UN-authorised humanitarian intervention exclusively within the target state of the intervention, I think, is internationally criminal. And that's an implication of the ICC amendments text, which includes as criminal wars inconsistent with the UN Charter, just as the Charter itself prohibits wars contrary to the purposes of the United Nations. And as we know from Article 51, just to read from the text of Article 51, self-defence shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council to take at any time such action as it deems necessary in order to maintain or restore international peace and security, a term of art that's now widely accepted to include subduing intrastate atrocity. So just to recap these disparate points, severe but non-violent infringements of territorial integrity and political independence or political independence are not criminal, but among the uses of force that are criminal are included those that seek to vindicate territorial integrity or political independence rights but don't do so in response to an armed attack, those that inflict violence without the aim of taking territory or usurping political control, 
and those that inflict violence on a UN-authorized humanitarian intervention within the target state's territory. So I think the explanation for why this latter list of actions is criminal, those actions are criminal, but the former non-violent but severe infringements of sovereignty and states' rights are not, can't rest on the degree to which each action violates those fundamental states' rights. If that were the test, the outcome would be reversed. The only coherent explanation is that criminality is determined by the form of that interstate violation, namely its connection to violence, and particularly violence against human beings. So just as this non-criminal status of severe sovereignty violations is significant, I think it's also important that other forms that don't involve an interstate violation, other forms of massive killing that do not respond to the threat or infliction of the same typically are criminal in some other form, either as crimes against humanity or domestic crimes lacking international protection. Now, the point at which such violence becomes criminal varies from situation to situation depending on the actors involved. So there's a greater presumption of the legitimacy of internal violence by the state than by non-state actors or interstate violence between state actors. But there is a basic consistency, which is that the large-scale non-defensive use of violence against human beings by any actor is criminally prohibited even if its purpose is to remedy an unlawful status quo. So violence is non-criminal if it responds to unlawful violence, but not otherwise. Now, just to be clear about this, the sovereignty element of aggression remains really important here. So the interstate violation remains important because it captures the type of initiating unjustified killing and it captures a type that's not criminalised by the other criminal prohibitions on that kind of wrong. Namely, it captures the type of killing foreign states' combatants by a state, a state that's not the state of the combatants killed. So it fills a crucial gap by providing international criminal law or just criminal law protection to the soldier's right to life, protection that's otherwise absent from the legal regime. And it's relevant because it sets a different threshold as to at what point violence becomes criminal. But the wrong that it condemns remains the unjustified killing itself. That's what distinguishes it from non-criminal sovereignty violations and explains its fit with other international and domestic crimes. And that brings me to the third reason. So the first two reasons are that states' rights don't do a very good job of explaining the criminalization of aggression, whereas unjustified killing at least does a better job of explaining that status. The third reason is it makes far better sense of aggression standing alongside crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide as the only international crimes than does the account of aggression as a crime against states' rights or sovereignty. In other words, it includes aggression as an essential aspect of the so-called humanization of international law that seems to be most manifest in international criminal law rather than isolating it as this inexplicable odd crime out. In other words, contrary to Luban's assertion that the humanization of international law and the criminalization of aggression are in fundamental tension, that one is the criminalization of aggression is the moral enemy of the human rights movement, this account would argue, well, actually, the strengthening of the sovereign right not to be subject to armed attack and the reduction of its right to use force to vindicate states' rights should be understood as part of the rise of human being, of the human being in international law law as a fundamental object of concern in international law. 
Okay, so the fourth ground for preferring the unjustified killing account is that the public reasons for restricting the use ad bellum in the early 20th century focus not on the need to bolster states' rights, but on the infliction of death and human suffering. So in his 1921 pamphlet laying the foundations for what became the Kellogg-Briand Pact, Salman Leveson described war as inhuman and compared outlawing war to recognising duelling to be plain murder. And months before signing the final pact, Frank Kellogg wrote to Aristide Briand, from the broad standpoint of humanity and civilization, all war is an assault upon human existence and should be suppressed in the common interest. And after the pact, he emphasised in a public domestic address in the United States, the primary motive was the millions of wounded and dead in armed conflict. And what's important is that rather than bolstering these arguments from a human focus with a claim that this will be important to enhancing states' rights or sovereignty, Levinson instead argued that a sovereign nation that would violate these rules is unworthy to retain its sovereignty. And Kellogg recognised that the biggest obstacle to the pact had been the long-standing notion that waging war was a nation's legal right. If you look at the Kellogg-Briand Pact's preamble, it makes no mention of the importance of vindicating sovereignty or states' rights. It emphasises states' solemn duty to promote the welfare of mankind through the humane endeavour of ending war. Okay, so finally, among the five core arguments for the unjustified killing account is the moral posture imminent at Nuremberg and Tokyo in the reasoning of both prosecutors and judges. So explaining the moral appeal of the criminalization of aggression, Robert Jackson, the chief US prosecutor, argued war necessarily is a calculated series of killings, destructions, and oppressions. So Hartley Shawcross, the British prosecutor in Nuremberg, argued that where the war is illegal, this was in his closing statement before the tribunal, where the war is illegal, there's nothing to justify the killing, and these murders are not to be distinguished from those of any other lawless robber band. Now, the International Military Tribunal didn't comment directly on that framing, but it did famously describe aggressive war as an accumulated evil, referencing in that term the wrongfulness of the constituent killings as the normative crux of the overall violation. And similarly, the Nuremberg Military Tribunal in the Ministry's case explained the criminalisation of aggression with reference to its infliction of horror, suffering and loss, and the Tribunal for the Far East in Tokyo explain the wrong with reference to the death and killing inflicted on countless human beings. And interestingly, the Tribunal for the Far East declined to consider the charge of murder as a crime against the peace, in other words, yusad bellum murder, only in light of its redundancy of the macro charge of aggression, noting that if the latter charge succeeded, it would simply entail, and then this is from the judgment, that the aggressor force had engaged in unlawful killings at all places in the theatre of war and at all times throughout the period of the war. More recently, something like this idea has come up more in a more abstract form in the ICTY committee report on NATO's intervention in Kosovo. As I'm sure many of you know, Lord Peter Goldsmith warned Tony Blair of the admittedly outside possibility that he could be charged with murder for killings by British soldiers in the 2003 invasion of Iraq, should the war be deemed illegal. So the claim of the chapter, the claim of the argument, is that when taken together, these five arguments the indeterminacy of states' rights on the issue, the determinacy of unjustified killing, coherence within international criminal law, coherence with the uh, public reasons given for the ban on the use of force and with the moral posture imminent at Nuremberg and Tokyo. Those five reasons taken together should move us in favour of thinking that this is a crime about the wrong of mass killing without justification, not a crime about wrongs against states' rights. 
understanding the, the rule in this way or the crime in this way better explains the law we have, better comports with the purposes of international criminal law, and more closely coheres with the adjacent regimes of sovereignty, killing, and crime. So that's why I advocate the unjustified killing account. But you might ask at this point, okay, so why should we care that that's the normative underpinning of the crime? What difference does it make? Well, it obviously makes a difference at the level of normative theory. So it might suggest, for example, that rather than looking to Walzer to try and understand the moral underpinnings of the crime, we should look to some of his contemporary philosophical critics like Jeff McMahon or David Rodin or Cecile Fabre, just, just in this institution. And that they might have much more to say about the internal normativity of the law than either lawyers or they recognise. Indeed, they often criticise Walzer for starting with the law rather than building his moral theory from the ground up. But the conceit of the argument is that it's just not, it's not just, I should say, a point of theoretical accuracy. In other words, that's not the only upshot of this argument, but in fact it has meaningful doctrinal upshots too. So I'll give you four in the remaining time. Two implications for how we ought to interpret the scope of the crime itself, and two implications for related rules governing how we ought to treat soldiers on either side of an aggressive war. So first, looking at the scope of the crime. If aggression is a crime about the wrong of killing that doesn't respond defensively to the unjustified infliction of wrongful death, or at least the imminent threat thereof, then even if one accepts, even if one accepts the dominant, although hotly debated, claim that humanitarian intervention lacking UN Security Council uh, authorization is illegal, even if one accepts that it's illegal, such wars don't inflict the wrong at the heart of the crime because they do respond defensively to what the law and indeed the criminal law, international criminal law, recognises to be the unjustified threat of widespread killing or analogous violence. If that's correct, then punishing those who wage such wars would contradict the object and purpose of the crime, which is to condemn and punish that wrong, the wrong of unjustified killing that doesn't respond defensively to the threat or infliction of the same. Now, one might object here that the illegality of humanitarian intervention actually poses a problem case for my account, and particularly a problem case for the idea that the restriction on the Yusad Bellum was part of the rise of the human being in international law rather than the rise of states' rights. I'm not going to take a position on the legality of humanitarian intervention, but I'll accept the premise that it's illegal. And I think even if we accept that premise... It's not incompatible with the account I've given. It just suggests that humanitarian intervention wouldn't be criminal. And that's because the most pro promising or most plausible normative account of the illegality of humanitarian intervention in the contemporary order, and by contemporary order I mean post-responsibility to protect, is not that such uses of force infringe states' rights, but that optimal legal rules have to take account of the possibility of exploitation or abuse in a way that the principles underpinning them don't. So the basic worry underpinning the illegality of humanitarian intervention is not a worry about states' rights, but that the danger, there's a danger of facilitating wars based on humanitarian pretext, and that that danger might outweigh the danger of failing to allow genuine humanitarian interventions. And so the result is a regime that prohibits wars that do not inflict the core wrong of the prohibition of the use of force or illegal uses of force so as not to encourage wars or a disproportionate number of wars that do inflict that core wrong. 
And that seems to me how we can best make sense of the independent International Commission on Kosovo's influential concept of an illegal but legitimate war as not just a comment on that particular intervention, but as a legal normative equilibrium, which I think many people believe it is with respect to humanitarian intervention. Now, you could say, well, if we're worried about encouraging bad wars, maybe that also should militate in favour of criminalising humanitarian intervention, not just making it illegal. But I think the threshold for criminalising what the law should recognise to be a justified act so as not to encourage unjustified acts is significantly higher than the same threshold when we're talking about legality rather than criminality. And that that threshold is especially high for international criminal law in light of its explicit focus on the most serious crimes. Now, it's not an insurmountable threshold. It's just a higher threshold. And the account I would present would recognise that the leader who wages such a war doesn't perpetrate the wrong at the core of the crime of aggression. And that would underpin a heavy presumption, not a dispositive presumption, but a heavy, heavy presumption in favour of interpreting Article 8 bis, Article 8 bis being the provision that will come into the Rome Statute that criminalises aggression, so that provision provides that only uses of force which by their character, gravity and scale constitute manifest violations of the UN Charter. The account I'm giving would militate in favour of interpreting that to exclude humanitarian intervention as a use of force lacking the character or gravity of a criminal aggression. Okay, so the second upshot of the view I presented, which also bears on the issue of defining the scope of the crime, is that so-called bloodless invasions are at the very least criminally marginal and possibly not criminal at all. Now, again, just as the case with humanitarian intervention, you might say, hang on a second, bloodless invasions are an objection to your entire theory. And when I say bloodless invasion, I mean the military taking of territory or political control without killing, presumably because of a lack of sufficient resistance. In fact, I think it's both compatible and coherent with the accounts I've given. So certainly a bloodless invasion amounts to an illegal use of force under Article 2.4. No question about that. But on a status account of the crime, it should be the paradigmatic example of a criminal aggression. It's the most successful and efficient way of usurping political control or taking territory. Notice that at Nuremberg, it was a marginal case. It wasn't charged before the International Military Tribunal. So the only of Germany's aggressions or invasions that were not charged before the International Military Tribunal were the annexations of Austria and the Sudetenland, and the International Military Tribunal explicitly distinguished them from wars of aggression in its final judgment. Now, it's true that the Nuremberg military tribunals that followed, the US-administered military tribunals that followed for lower-level criminals, did include those bloodless invasions or relatively bloodless invasions as criminals, so it expanded the scope to focus on those. But what's relevant for me and what I think is interesting about that decision is that it wasn't rooted in the territory or political power that Germany gained. That wasn't what those tribunals emphasised. It was rooted in the violence that Germany threatened against the Czech and Austrian people in taking that control. In other words, the criminality of even bloodless invasion is rooted in its latent violence against human persons. It's that latent violence that transforms the sovereignty violation, egregious as it is, into a criminal violation. And that's not that unfamiliar from criminal law, the idea that latent violence would serve as a gravity multiplier when attached to a lower-level legal breach. But at the same time, latent violence is rarely considered equal to consummated violence in gravity. And so 
from the unjustified killing account, we can see why it might just about make it over the threshold of criminality, but why it's going to be a marginal case as opposed to a core case of criminal aggression. Whereas on the state's statist account of the crime of aggression, you might expect the reverse, that it would be right at the core because of its effective taking of territory and political independence or usurpation of political control. And if it's a marginal account, then again, a marginal crime, then again, if we look at the ICC amendment, and particularly the gravity threshold internal to Article 8 bis, so there's this special gravity threshold internal to the crime, separate from the general international criminal court gravity threshold, then my account would suggest we may use that gravity threshold to interpret bloodless invasion as, so as not to count as criminal under the ICC statute. So it's compatible with including bloodless invasion at the margins but it would probably weigh against including such invasions as criminal. Okay, so the third upshot of the accounts I've sketched goes to reparations. So if we think about Yusad Bellum reparations generally and look to the two most recent large-scale cases, the UN Compensation Commission, the Eritrea, Ethiopia Eritrea Claims Commission, first looking at Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, second looking at what it determined to be Eritrea's armed attack on Ethiopia. What's notable is that both excluded almost all harms suffered by combatants from the wrongs warranting reparation. All harms suffered by combatants in the course of combat as opposed to prisoner of war harms. Now, whether or not such a, pro such a move is appropriate in an ordinary Yusad Bellum regime, on the account I've presented, the unjustified killing account, it would be a massive error to replicate that kind of exclusion in the ICC's reparations regime. My account would militate the exact opposite direction in favour of a reparations regime that focuses its greatest expressive emphasis on the aggressive forces killing of soldiers who were injured uh, or killing of soldiers in the aggression and perhaps collateral civilians. And the reason it would do that is that it would recognise that aggression is the only criminal law protection of the soldier's human right to life in an international armed conflict. Now, of course, as things stand at the ICC, the reparations programmes thus far have been rooted in a proximate cause test. So you might think, well, it doesn't really matter whether it's a status account of the crime or an unjustified killing account of the crime. Both should capture the killing of combatants. But obviously, the unjustified killing account precludes the kind of exception that we saw in the two claims commissions. And more importantly, the proximate cause test is probably not going to survive in an aggression context. It's just way too broad. So if the reparations or the reparative focus is to be narrowed, my account would argue in narrowing, for narrowing it in favour of focusing on harms against soldiers and particularly killing and maiming of soldiers and collateral civilians as the core wrong warranting reparation, perhaps through, for example, funding veterans' care and reintegration programmes, funding pension plans for dead soldiers' families and the like. OK, so then the fourth and final upshot of the accounts I've sketched goes to the disobedience rights of soldiers. So if unjustified killing is the moral core of the crime, then from the legal point of view, the soldiers involved in a criminal war perpetrate directly the wrongful violence that makes the enterprise criminal. And that would suggest that the leadership element of aggression is rooted not in the moral permissibility of killing in an aggressive war, as Waltz's moral equality of combatants would have it, but rather in line with some of his contemporary philosophical critics like Jeff McMahon, in the Yusin Bello benefit of ad bellum immunity for combatants fighting in an aggressive war, and the fact that few such combatants are sufficiently culpable 
for their wrongful killings to warrant punishment. Now, those different reasons underpin the same criminal liability regime. We'd still only be punishing leaders, but they entail a very different posture on soldiers' rights. So it's uncontroversial that soldiers have a right to disobey Yusin Bello, orders that violate the Yusin Bello, and that that right, often enshrined in domestic law, is then buttressed by refugee status for those who face punishment domestically if they do refuse to violate, uh, to comply with orders that violate the Yusin Bello. Those rights have not, except in two very marginal cases, been extended to Yusad Bellum disobedience. Often this is for political question reasons, but some courts have rejected asylum or human rights claims of soldiers that refused to fight in an illegal war on the grounds that such soldiers were not ordered to do anything wrong. They didn't face illegal orders. And indeed, that unyielding position was applied even in Germany in the aftermath of World War II to soldiers who refused to fight in Germany's wars of aggression and applied after the Nuremberg tribunals had already found the war to be criminal. The idea in these cases seems to be something like the idea that soldiers are little different from taxpayers, that they're too far removed from the macro wrong against a foreign state, something that's so far beyond their control and responsibility to bear the burden that would underpin the right to disobey. And again, whether or not that makes sense on the statist account, and I'm actually sceptical that it does even on that account. On an unjustified killing account, it's misguided. Soldiers who refuse to fight in an aggressive war refuse to do precisely what's wrong and crime-making about the war. And if that's correct, then even though there remain good reasons not to hold them criminally liable for participating, there's an internal imperative to take seriously their claim when they refuse to fight whether by affirming that disobedience via post-war recognition in domestic courts or post-war commissions, Chilcot inquiry-type bodies, or human rights courts, or via refugee status if they don't have those kinds of protections at home. Now, the objections to that might be practical, but it's important to locate the objections in the realm of practicality rather than in the idea, well, they're not ordered to do anything wrong in the first place, because it then has implications for for situations in which the practical obstacles may be reduced. And I'm happy to talk about that in Q&A. Okay, so just to wrap up and and recap the core point, we've criminalised aggressive war because it involves mass killing without justification. That's how we can explain the rule. That's how we can explain its position in the law. I give you five arguments. The indeterminacy of states' rights, the determinacy of unjustified killing, coherence within international criminal law, the public reasons motivating the ban on the use of force, and the moral posture imminent at Nuremberg and Tokyo. And understanding the crime in that way, I think, matters legally because it helps to define the contours of the crime, specifically with reference to humanitarian intervention and bloodless invasion, helps to define the core expressive goals of ICC reparations for this crime, and should underpin a debate, at least, on the rights of disobedient soldiers and when they should be vindicated. Thank you. Uh, and that makes sense. 
sovereignty is a package of rights and obligations that operate only between states. It would not make sense to punish an individual for violation of sovereignty because individuals have no obligation to states with respect to their sovereignty. So even if what you say is true of the, the regime of individual criminal responsibility, would you expect that the, except that the parallel regime on the use of force is still mostly about the stability of the system and about protecting institutions such as sovereignty? Yeah, I th I, that's not inconsistent with with um, with the account. So I I agree that you can look at the uh, ban on the use of force and say this is in large part about redefining the rules in terms of what counts as a sovereignty violation between states. I still think, well, why have we redefined it in that way rather than the way it was before? I think partly the reason that we have is because of a concern for human life. But I, if, if it hadn't been criminalized, it would be a lot harder to make the kind of argument I'm making because you could say, well, it's just a re-shifting of the boundaries of states' rights that could have gone either way. One, one route privileges a certain kind of stability, one route privileges another. When we have international institutions, maybe the ban on the use of force is more feasible than it was before. But it still looks like human life matters as a reason for that, even if it's not the core violation that a state would impose on another. And it certainly looks like it's the reason and the core wrong at issue in the, in the crime of aggression. But I, I'm, not, I'm not totally opposed to the way that you framed it with respect to states' rights. I mean, in, in some way, the way you framed it actually, I think, supports the view because you suggested, well, individuals can't violate states' rights, which would suggest that the crime of aggression has to be understood as, as a violation, at the core of which is, is killing, wrongful killing. Thank you very much for your talk. How would you square your account with the idea that government consent, the consent of the territorial government, is enough to legalise the use of force by a foreign state? on the territory of that state against its population because in that case there is a good deal of they can't it's quite possibly unjustified killing of people within that state and the difference seems to be that the consent means that there's no violation of territorial integrity and political independence. So I just thought Yeah so I mean that goes to when I was talking about other ways in which unjustified killing is is unjust is criminalized. And I mean, you could frame the same exact question with respect to why, what, why don't I think that there's a greater criminal prohibition on the state inflicting violence on its own population. So the same, same issue applies, I think. So it is a violation by the state or the, the invited state if they're not responding to some lethal threat, right? You can't just go in and start killing members of the population in a foreign state with no... Uh, no threat on their part. You're committing a crime against humanity. You know, but you're committing a crime against humanity. So it's a different type of crime. And as I said, it's important to the crime of aggression that there's an interstate violation. That distinguishes this as a certain type of unjustified killing. But other forms of unjustified killing are criminalised in different ways. So the form that you're describing would be criminalised as a crime against humanity. Now, where it gets more complicated is if the, inter the invited state or the host state itself are fighting against rebels... And we think that the rebels are, in some sense, justified in their use of force. Maybe they're responding to an initial crime against humanity by the state. So the Syrian rebels, maybe, Free Syrian Army. Maybe they're responding to initial crime against humanity, so they are responding to a an unjustified use of force, and then the state is somehow allowed to kill them. That does look anomalous on my view, and I do think that's an anomaly. Um, 
But if they're not if they're not responding to an unjustified use of force, the rebels, then the theory is that they're posing the unjustified threat. And so the intervening state and the host state are both responding to that unjustified use of violence. There's a high presumption in favour of the state using violence domestically in a justified way versus rebels. And unless that presumption is overturned because there's a crime against humanity, I don't think it poses any problem, for my account. Where it does pose a problem is in the Free Syrian Army case, where you could argue they're responding to an unjustified use of force by the state. Now the state can kill them, and they can invite Russia to come in and kill them, and there's no aggression. That looks anomalous, but I think that's the anomaly rather than that being a sort of paradigmatic case. You're basically saying that crimes against humanity are responsible to protect and create something like an internal Ustad Bellum? Well, it's, it's, not, it's just not a Ustad Bellum, but it's, a, it's another way of criminalizing wrongful killing. So the presumption is normally the state's not going to start <laughs> killing within its own borders. That's the presumption, right? The presumption that we have um, if they do, then it's going to be a crime against humanity. If the rebels do, then they're going to be domestically criminal. Their, their actions are going to be domestically criminal. And so whether a state comes in on the invitation of the host or not doesn't really change that paradigm. Yeah, so I think on the on the latter example, it wouldn't be. I mean, in that sense, it does privilege economically powerful states or states with technological capacity to inflict those kind of harms. But, I mean, a way of looking at it in reverse would be, would that kind of action trigger a right of self-defense? Would that count as an armed attack that would trigger a right of self-defense? And I think it would be a really radical... I'll come to the first question afterwards, but I think it would be a really radical expansion of the rights of self-defense to say that that kind of action would trigger a right to use defensive force to start killing Germans in response, notwithstanding the huge impact that it would have on, on the target state. So in some ways, there's a conservatism here that says you cannot use violence to remedy even an extremely unjust or unlawful status quo unless you're doing it in response to violence. And that's sort of the basic premise. Um, on the first question, so I think there are a couple of questions. Um, one is, so looking at, 
specifically Austria and the Sudetenland. So I think on the Austrian example, you could go either way. They're, both rationales hold up. When you're talking about taking the territory of Czechoslovakia, taking part of it, and not the whole of Czechoslovakia just saying, come in, then that looks like it's going to be a violation of their territorial integrity, even if the population within the Sudetenland is welcoming of, of the German forces. So it seems difficult in the Sudetenland case to capture it with the kind of kind of statist version of the uh, different status offered to the Austrian invasion as opposed to the violent invasions. It looks difficult to translate that to the Sudetenland case. Um, yeah, so I, that's my response to that. But then you also said, um, so why should it be a relevant factor whether the... Uh, whether the decision makers at the top of a state decide this is too overwhelming a force to not to, to respond to, we just don't have the capacity to respond to this. So I think the question there is, well, if we look at two aggressions um, that look in every respect similar, except in one case the defendant state looks at the oncoming force and says, there's no way we're going to survive, we should just accept this. And in the other state, the uh, leaders try and fight back and a lot of killing happens same ultimate outcome, both states are taken over. Why is the latter criminal on my account and the former marginal or possibly even not criminal? And I think, well, that's, that's actually a position that's regularly taken in the criminal law. So if, if you were mugged, so there'd be three different levels, right? One is where your wallet's just taken. And that's going to be a relatively low-level offence. Another's where a gun is put against you and your your wallet's taken. And a third is with where you try and resist and you're killed and your wallet's taken. Those are very different gravity levels of crime. And in each case, the sentencing and in some cases, the classification of the crime are going to be different. For example, the first is going to move from misdemeanor to a felony. And even between the second two, using uh, my knowledge of American criminal law, I don't know anything about domestic British criminal law, so just put that to one side. Um, but even between the latter two, there's going to be a significant gravity difference between uh, the crime of armed robbery and the crime of killing somebody in the context of an armed robbery. And I think that's an appropriate difference, even though we might think that the intent of the individual in the first place or the intent or the sort of threat posed in the first place in both is the same. So, I, But nonetheless, I mean, this is the reason why the difference between the first and the second, they're just taking the wallet and they're sticking you up to take the wallet. That difference is significant, and that's why I think that latent violence makes sense of moving it into the margins of criminal aggression. But I do then think there's a significant normative difference between following through on that threat and killing versus just posing the threat. Second question about consent. Mm -hmm. um, so, as I understood it, the question was something along the lines of that's not aggression where the uh, where the government consents, but we could still have unjustified killing. Mm -hmm. Now, you might respond to that question. This wasn't your response, but you could have responded perhaps to that question by exploring what we mean by unjustified killing, and so whether mm -hmm. you mean morally justified or whether we mean legally justified or whether we mean morally and legally mm -hmm. unjustified and I think one explanation which would 
make everything sort of coherent mm -hmm. is to say that unjustified killing must mean legally unjustified as well. So whether it includes morally unjustified, but it certainly means legally unjustified. Yeah. So in the case of the states that comes in with the consent of, of the government, it's not legally unjustified, and for that reason and that reason alone, it's not aggression. Yeah. It's not a crime of war. But the problem that that would then pose for you is how you deal with humanitarian intervention. Yeah. Uh, and this is where my question really is, is going to. So even if one accepts the normative account that you, that you put forward, and I actually do accept it, I'll come back to that, I think it, I accept it, one might have quibbles about the implications, mm -hmm. right? particularly with regard to the implications for humanitarian intervention. So this is where I'll link back to the, to the question. If you take the view that unjustified includes legally unjustified, mm -hmm. then one might take a very different view of your humanitarian intervention explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you might have some, mo you might, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you have to accept that, you might have morally good reasons for wanting to use force, but it's legally unjustified and that suffices for us to still yes. make it criminal. And you might even quibble with the moral justification too, because of course humanitarian intervention is an attempt to remedy a scenario. So the fact that you are responding to wrongs that are being committed doesn't mean that your response is justified. Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't, um, you know, so my neighbor's house is burning, I might have, that might mean that, well, there's good reasons for doing something, but it doesn't mean that my, any action that I take is therefore justified. Yeah. You know, so if my neighbor's house is burning and I attempt to um, set out the fire by dousing all the petrol that I have on the flames, I'm responding to a wrong, but yeah, clearly yeah, yeah. I'm still doing something wrong. So that's one question. What does unjustified mean? And does it include legally unjustified? My second question goes to your first, your response to the first question mm -hmm. about whether there's a difference between criminalization of aggression and just the prohibition of the use of force. And I wasn't quite sure whether you were accepting his suggestion just because you don't need to disagree with it to make your point. And I kind of got that impression that you were just saying, well, I don't need to disagree with you, so I won't. Um, or whether you really believe that there's a difference. So this mm -hmm. is really the question I'm asking. Do you believe that there's a difference? Because when I look at the five reasons that you give yeah. for your, can I call it, humanity account, yeah. only, well, two out of the five deal with international criminal law. So the moral posture at Nuremberg and the fact that it makes better sense standing alongside the other crimes. The other three yeah. seem to me to fit just as well with yes. the prohibition of the use of force. So, so I just want to push you on that. Do you really agree with him or were you just saying, I don't need to disagree with you? So, no, I, I disagree. Um, you're right that three of the five um, would count even on the use of force. My argument was more um, in response to that was I would, in, in interacting with somebody who had the opposite view, there would be a less clear um, victory in my view for my account. We, would, we could have different perspectives on what the use of force and the prohibition on the use of force means. And my perspective would remain that its value is in protecting life. 
Um, so in that sense, I would disagree. But I think the other position is also plausible and coherent. I think where it loses coherence would be if it's, it's translated to the international criminal law context. So that was, that's, that's a way of responding to the, the question that may be slightly different from the way I did before. And so that's helpful. Um, on the, the first question, um, so there is a sense of legally unjustified here, and that's partly, I mean, that's just a clearer way of, of giving the response that I was giving, which is, so there are contexts in which being invited, you would still be engaged in illegally in, in legally unjustified use of force, such as when the host state is committing a crime against humanity and says, hey, do you want to come in and join? Um, but if you're responding to rebels, then this, the host state has legal justification in using force against them. There's no criminal prohibition on a state fighting rebels. Um, and so that would translate to the incoming state too. Um, but then, so then moving to humanitarian intervention, I agree that you could look at humanitarian intervention and say it's, um, well, if legal justification is the issue, then doesn't a humanitarian intervention look like it's legally unjustified? So I guess I'd reframe it a little bit and say it's about responding proportionately to an illegal, to an unjustified use of force that's unjustified because it's illegal, right? So when I was... And that would extend also to the rebel context, that the rebels are acting illegally under domestic law and they have no international protection. So in a humanitarian intervention, the action against which you're responding is unjustified because it's illegal and it's unjustified killing, and you're responding to that killing. Now, it's true that that doesn't itself make the humanitarian intervention non-criminal on my account. You still have to be proportionate. So the proportionality requirement's always going to come in um, to a defense. So similarly, if you're acting defensively, you're defending against an armed attack, if you do so disproportionately, it's going to be an illegal use of force. And it potentially, if it were radically disproportionate, could be a criminal use of force on my, on my account. Um, and the same would apply to aggression. So in terms of, res- uh, sorry, humanitarian intervention. So in responding to an atrocity in a way that's radically disproportionate or unnecessary, that doesn't actually target the unjustified harm that the is causing the humanitarian catastrophe and respond in a way that's effective and proportionate to it, then that could potentially... It, it's already... I'm assuming it's illegal, but it could also be potentially criminal if it were really woefully off. Um, so I'd, in, in the example of throwing petrol on a burning building, I wouldn't have any... I don't think that kind of problem case is a problem case for me because I would say, well, that's just not a necessary and proportionate response. So it's not a genuine humanitarian intervention in the way that I'm thinking about it. Um, but yeah. what if it's just ineffective? So when you yeah. say disproportionate, you're thinking of a case where the state has done more than yeah. it needs to. Yeah. In cases where the state has done less, yeah. so it's not actually solved the humanitarian yeah. problem, but maybe has engaged in killing, how yeah. would you deal so with some that? Sort of unjustified? Drone strikes that you know kill some people, uh, kill some of the, the people posing the humanitarian threat, but don't really do anything effective in terms of stopping the humanitarian catastrophe. Um, Well, those wouldn't wouldn't be criminal on my account. They wouldn't be particularly laudable necessarily, but they wouldn't be criminal on my account because they would be responding to unjustified killing in a a proportionate and at least credible way. So, I mean, if you're going way over the top in terms of the 
quantum of force you're using or if you're using force in a way that's not really dealing with the humanitarian catastrophe. So if you're targeting persons or um, targets that aren't really involved in the humanitarian catastrophe and seeking to achieve other ends, then I think it could be classified as criminal as being disproportionate or unnecessary. But if you just don't do quite enough, I think it would be extremely... It would be an overly harsh criminal regime that would count that as criminal. And I don't think it would violate the core norms that I think underpin the crime of aggression. Because on your account, it's the unjustified killing. Yes. Yes, So in those cases, you're right, it could be that you could look at those as unjustified, yeah. Um, But I think it'd be... So I guess in in a world of perfect, with no epistemic obstacles, where you could really assess, was this just unnecessary killing rather than the state doing what it thought might be enough but or the actors involved doing what they thought might be enough but not succeeding in that respect then maybe I would accept that that case um, but in a context where there's always going to be uncertainty about how much is necessary and whether or not they were just doing it for kicks rather than as a genuine effort to, to stop the atrocity then I think in that epistemically limited world, then it shouldn't be counted as criminal. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your methodology. Yeah. Um, because it seems like most of what you're doing is philosophical and deductive, but then you have these little snippets of historical mm-hmm. and interpretive uh, moments, like when you're citing the correspondence between Kellogg and Dion, um, and suggesting that we can draw an understanding from that. Mm-hmm. Um, Relatedly, I was wondering if you're familiar at all with the work of Anatoly Levshin. He's a PhD student at Princeton. He's basically answering the same question, why have we criminalized aggressive war from a purely historical interpretive uh, position where he's looking at the archives of the League of Nations and looking Mm -hmm. at shifting attitudes Mm -hmm. towards um, the morality of waging aggressive war, etc. And I'm just wondering if maybe within that answer about methodology, you could address how you think your your work relates to someone's answer um, in that sort of interpretive historical mm-hmm. approach. So I don't know him, um, but I'd better get the book out quickly. Um, <laughs> he, so so on that account, I mean, I think I think it's, it's possible that a historical account would... So the, the problem with, with doing a purely historical account without linking it up to some of the normative connections that I'm trying to make is that the motives for... I want to draw a distinction between the motives for engaging in a particular legal move and the reasons, which I mean sort of defensible public reasons underpinning that move. And so looking at archives, you're going to get a much clearer sense of the motives, um, but in a way that may not translate in, in the way I'm thinking into public reasons. So there may be reasons that uh, France and the United... Well, for example, France on the Kellogg-Briand Pact looking to get the United States to sign on as an ally with you know, the idea of having an alliance that locks the United States into assisting France. That might be a motive for signing on to the pact, and looking at some of the archives would give you an insight into that motive. But it wouldn't qualify on my account as a reason for the pact. It wasn't part of the public reason, given it wasn't part of the preamble. It's not part of the sort of posture that the law is... is articulating for itself. Um, on methodology, so the idea is, is that international criminal law, and I th- this is generally how I think about criminal law, is that it's is, is the moral expressivism theory of criminal punishment. 
And so necessarily there's some weaving back and forth in the interstices of legal interpretation and moral philosophy and trying to determine what the values that are being expressed in the law are because you need to have some connection, a strong connection to what the law says and what the law prohibits and doesn't prohibit and included in that purposes that are articulated in the preamble and things that are perhaps uh, discoverable in the travaux or something like that. Um, but then it's not just going to look at that kind of work because it's then looking beyond what the law requires to try and figure out what the values underneath it could possibly be, what would make sense of this, and what would make sense of it not just on its own, but also in a way that coheres with the other adjacent areas of law. Now, obviously, in a, in a certain context, you may come up with a rule that just doesn't cohere with other areas of law, and that would still be a law. It's not, it's not as I'm claiming that it has to cohere in that way for it to be legal, or that there's always going to be this coherence, but that if we can find a way that makes coherent sense of it, then that's going to be a more powerful understanding of what the value of the law is. Um, and so just on the, on the question about how it relates to somebody doing archival work on what motivated this, I mean, it's possible that they could come to the same sort of conclusion, in which case that just each one buttresses the other. But I think if they don't, then that might just suggest that they're doing slightly different things and understanding slightly different things about the law in that context. Do you feel like, sorry, can I just follow up on that? Uh, do you feel like what you're doing then is perhaps addressing the question of on what normative basis did we come to criminalize aggressive war rather than why historically? Yeah, it's not why historically. You're okay. absolutely right about that. So on what normative, what's the best normative account of why we've done this? Here. I think it's reflected in the negotiations, whether state representatives agree of, you know, whether they've gone to the archives or not. They certainly wrestle with individual versus the state, you know, the whole green light, red light, amber discussion and how do you interact, you know, with the ICJ or with the Security Council with aggression. So I find that useful. Given I lean more where you're going, but then I think, are you then critical of what's well, kind of an abdication by the human rights movement saying aggression is not for us, it's not on our plate? Even though you're making quite a strong argument that it was. Their briefings through the negotiations, yeah. the intercessional and up to Kampala, for example, just sort of stopped and said, it's not my mandate, not my mandate, you know? So that's, I think, something that I'd be interested to hear your comment on, and maybe that also continues if we're trying to, and I say if, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we should be, but having states then ratify the amendment is to say it, there's a human rights imperative to it. Um, I, I would say I'm not so sure there is, because I'm kind of more in your, the point about bloodless invasions and the gravity threshold, I think, says, why do we need it if we have crimes against the crimes against the and war crimes? Just a, my other second comment, so what is the sort of human rights responsibility mm -hmm. Movement, movement side. The other one is on um, your point about uh, uh, refugees. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting, coming from a country that was not part of the coalition of the willing and so therefore has had refugee claimants. Mm -hmm. One, the Canada, you, you mean you Canada? Canada, yeah. <laughs> you can tell. Um, but the, the question has been, certainly in the political discourse, is oh, but we don't have conscription, you don't have a draft, mm -hmm. you, you, you sign up for this. Mm -hmm. you, know? And I'm, you know, and that certainly has you know, a, a strength among tabloid mm -hmm. newspapers, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how it fits into your own sort of analysis there of yep. sort of, well, you, you bought into this. Yeah. You voted for it. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, so on the human rights movement, you're absolutely right in, in, the, in the chapter. Um, I include them, when I'm talking about Walter and Luban and this dominant account, I include some of the um, writings and statements of human rights actors um, saying this is a crime against states, this isn't a crime against persons, and they're buying into this idea that this is an anomalous crime, it does something different, it criminalises a different kind of wrong, and it's not our responsibility, um, and we're sort of neutral on it. Amnesty International, Open Society Institute, a lot of these uh, groups have signed on to letters and taken that position, and I, I do, in, in the chapter I explicitly reject it for the reasons that you're suggesting, and, and sort of count them as part of the... Um, the community that's adopting this normative account, the dominant normative account that I'm rejecting, and say they're mistaken in that respect. And the implication would be that if if they think that the crime as it's defined in Article 8 this does a good job in terms of defining when unjustified killing is happening and, and not, and I would actually, I mean, if I were going to draft the crime myself, I wouldn't draft it the way it's drafted in Article 8 this, despite um, thinking that this is what the crime is about. But you could, dra you could draft the contours in a way that would slightly better uh, reflect that value. Um, as long as they think that the, the provision isn't problematic in that respect, then I think they should be much more um, aggressive in, in pushing the, <laughs> the, the crime of aggression. Um, on the draft, yeah, so you're not... Um, so the first thing is that if you go for Yusin Bello, if you, if you disobey a order on the ground that it's Yusin Bello violation. Um, and you knew before you signed up to the military that there were lots of Yusin Bello violations in the ward to which you're going to be deployed. That does not serve as a block on you getting refugee status. So I'm not sure that it necessarily should in the context of Yusin Bello. But the second point is a lot of people didn't sign up after they knew that, the, that A, there was going to be an aggressive war, and B, the details of the nature of the war. And so those people were forced into participating in a context in which they had no alternative. They were going to get punished if they didn't. So, And that applies to some of the claimants that made claims in Canada, that they'd, they'd been in the military before 2002, 2003, and so they had no idea that they were going to be sent to Iraq and that they were going to... The, the claimants in this case were making the claim that Iraq was in the legal war in uh, Canadian courts rejected those claims. I mean, ultimately, some of them were able to stay on humanitarian grounds because they'd been there for a while, but in terms of the actual refugee status claim, they were denied. Um, I think that's a mistake. I mean, just because it's a volunteer army doesn't mean that people aren't forced to participate and to kill in ways that they should be able to say no to. Um, and, yeah, as I said, it since the parallel rule doesn't seem to apply in Yusin Bello, nobody makes that claim about Yusin Bello violations. Um, that seems weird to me. Um, if it were a volunteer force in which you could leave at any point, I mean, no military is like this, but which you could leave at any point without facing punishment, then obviously you wouldn't have refugee status claim because you wouldn't have the kind of threat to your um, person that you would have in your home country um, in the case that we have now, but but otherwise, yeah, I, I don't think the, the lack of a draft undermines the refugee status claim. Just a quick supplement, just to say that the lack of draft certainly is a discussion point that comes up. Yes. Lay public, right? So yeah, 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 absolutely. But perhaps a more sophisticated army can be 
there's a draft, but also there is a military justice system or internal yeah. processes. So it's an yes. additional element yeah. so if, to add to the draft part. Yeah, so when I was saying at the end, if um, th- I think the most plausible way of moving forward with a refugee status system for Yossad Bellum disobedient soldiers would be that you'd only get the refugee status if there wasn't some form of Yossad Bellum disobedience protection in your home state. I think it's totally unrealistic to think that that would happen during the war but I don't think it's totally unrealistic to think that a home state could allow for certain kind of retrospective Yusad Bellum disobedient protections by exonerating people after the conflict, even if it punishes them during them for reasons of institutional necessity. I mean, this is a whole other chapter of the, of the book. But, um, but yeah, so if you had those kind of processes domestically, the weird thing in some of the Canadian decisions is that they, they say, well, the US has a system of military justice and so on and protections, yeah, but it has no protection for Yusad Bellum disobedience. So that's not an answer to the claim of a soldier that's disobeying on Yusad Bellum grounds, that, well, you have a system that would protect your Yusin Bellow disobedience, because that's not what they're doing. Um, the same so, yeah. system in Canada. Yeah. The military justice system right. in the United States is the same one in Canada. So you should be a bit careful, being too critical. Right. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, you gave us a lot of food for thought, and I think I have limited time to process it. I just want to ask a brief question on the implication of your accounts. And I think it popped up earlier when you were answering the previous question on the relativist invasion, because that's what I think mm-hmm. also that the reasoning becomes uh, more complicated. Um, so you conceded that uh, this view would end up uh, favoring states who have the resources and the, the technological um, capabilities of carrying out certain types of measures. Uh, so my question is, um, on your account, and your account, do you think that therefore aggression protects only powerful states who can who can put up a resistance to any form of invasion that potentially is bloodless in this case? Um, and I think about small island states or those very small countries that cannot realistically maybe don't even have an army, and therefore unless they, there is a levy mass, you can even you can't even uh, think of a form of resistance that meets the requirement, and therefore does not fall within the crimes against humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, is that the case of your reasoning? So, uh, because unless you justify it on sovereign equality, it doesn't make sense uh, under the account of justified killings to protect these yes. smaller states. So, is there a disparity there for an application of aggression within the, the international community? Yes, there is, because I don't think that protecting states' rights is the core moral value of the crime of aggression. So, I'm not overly concerned that some states will be, I mean, I'm concerned on another level that some states will be threatened more by aggressive war than others. But that's true regardless of what happens with the criminalization of aggression. It's maybe slightly exaggerated now because, or on my account because you, you wouldn't be criminally liable for a bloodless invasion and you'd be much more likely to have a successful bloodless invasion against a smaller state. But my, my, the whole thrust of my argument is that what we should be concerned about here or what we are concerned about here is killing. And so... The question is, in a small state, well, is there killing? The, the, the people are what I'm worried about protecting, not as much the state. And so the fact that smaller states are more vulnerable on this account is you know, an unfortunate side effect, but it's not something that I, I find to be um, problematic. I mean, small states are disadvantaged by all sorts of rules in the international legal system. Um, so they're disadvantaged here too. But on the other hand, a, a 
print a, a view that would look solely at a statist account of the crime of aggression, so looking at the alternative, would also disadvantage small states in another way, because only large states have the capacity to effectively engage in major drone operations that don't take territory and don't usurp political independence, but just go in and kill people. And this, this account would clearly criminalize those in a way that the statist account might not. So the statist account might disadvantage small states in a, in a different way. We might have time for one more question, but really brief. Right, so, you can join me in thanking Tom.